If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Habsburgs were one of Europe's most formidable and durable dynasties, ruling over swathes of the continent for centuries. Speaking to Spencer Mizzen, in this latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Peter Judson tells the story of this powerhouse of a family, from their championing of Catholicism to the disastrous effects of their incestuous marriages. Hi Peter, thanks for joining us today. Now, we're here to talk about the mighty and extraordinarily resilient Habsburg dynasty. Now, I'd like to start with a question that's very popular among internet search queries and that is what was the Habsburg Empire? Can you give us a very quick overview of the rise and fall of this dynasty? Sure. The Habsburg Empire was actually many different things. The dynasty itself becomes famous in the 1300s when it's located in what's today Switzerland but it quickly moves over, it loses its Swiss territory and gets established in what's today Austria. And then in the 1400s, through a series of remarkable marriages, 
the dynasty becomes the ruler, really, of an incredible number of territories in Europe, in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, but more importantly, Spain, Portugal, and what's called the New World. Then they lose the Spanish holdings and the New World holdings around 1700 with the war of the Spanish succession when the Spanish Habsburgs die out. And they become centered then in Central and Eastern Europe, which is the Habsburg Empire we know till its collapse at the end of World War I. So I'm going to now turn to a question that has been submitted on social media by Del Holsworth. And he asks... What was the dynasty's origins? Can you tell us a little bit about its early years? Well, as I said, the dynasty isn't particularly noteworthy. It's a quite small, unimportant family in Switzerland. Until in the 1300s, the head of the dynasty, Rudolf, is elected Holy Roman Emperor. And he's elected essentially in order to keep the two other powerful claimants off the throne because he's viewed as someone who's unimportant and won't do anything. And then, of course, the opposite happens, as it often does. But very quickly, he gains territories in what's today Austria, and the dynasty essentially moves to Austria and loses its Swiss holdings. That's the beginning of the dynasty in the 1300s. But then the dynasty sort of isn't important again until the mid-1400s, when another Habsburg becomes elected Holy Roman Emperor, that's Frederick, and this time they hold on to the title of Emperor really until the end of the Holy Roman Empire, with one exception. So it's really from the mid-1400s on that the dynasty becomes really important and very influential. So can you just tell us a little bit about the Holy Roman Empire? I mean, how does that come into the Habsburg story? Because it's a term that you hear used in conjunction with the Habsburg dynasty quite often, isn't it? Yes. Having that title gave the Habsburgs a great deal of visibility and influence, not so much power, but certainly access to resources and money. So the Holy Roman Empire, well, I might compare it a bit to the EU today in that it's a very loose confederation of many, many states, some of them tiny towns, others big states. And there are seven sort of important states within it that elect an emperor, And the emperor serves for the rest of his life. It's always a man. And then they elect a new one. And what the Habsburgs managed to do in the 1400s was to pay off the electors so that always another Habsburg would be elected and the dynasty would hold on to the title. The title, as I said, gave them a lot of sort of fame and influence, but it didn't give them much power over these other states, let's say. In that sense, the Holy Roman Empire wasn't as united as even the EU. The emperor couldn't tell the rulers what to do, but the emperor was a very important person, and also in terms of religion, in terms of the Catholic religion. The emperor was usually or often crowned by the pope and was the sort of titular head of the Catholic rulers in Europe. 
Okay, we'll come back to the the religious element in uh, a bit more detail a bit later. Before we do that, can I put you a question which was submitted also on social media by Catherine Arthur? That was, how important were canny marriages to the rise of the Habsburg dynasty? And can you identify one particular marriage that really supercharged their rise? Well, it's almost a legend that the Habsburgs gained their financial resources and power and territory through brilliant marriages. When I looked at this question, I thought, which was the most important marriage? And there are really two, and I apologize that I can't just choose one. The first is Emperor Maximilian I in the 1400s, who marries Mary of Burgundy. And Burgundy is a state that is one of the wealthiest in the world at that time. It's sort of today the eastern part of France, the Netherlands, Belgium, that area. It's incredibly wealthy, commercially quite powerful, and she's the most eligible heiress in all Europe, and everyone wants to marry her, and Maximilian of Habsburg succeeds. And when he does, they get control of all the commerce in the Netherlands, the trade, the taxes, uh, the money is just unbelievable. So that's the one marriage. And then the next important one is the children of Maximilian and Mary of Burgundy. And that's Philip, known as Philip the Handsome, who marries Juana of Spain. And she's the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, who united Spain in the first place. And she inherits the whole thing. So Philip becomes the king of Spain. And that's how they get the Spanish territories. For a while, they get Portugal, and they also get the newly discovered territories in the New World. So I think while there are many important marriages that bring in territories, those are the two biggest. May I add a third set of marriages? Also, thanks to Maximilian, one son marries the woman who is the heir to Bohemia and Hungary, and one daughter marries the man who's the heir to Hungary and Bohemia. And that man dies in a battle against the Ottoman Empire. And so the Habsburg son gets Bohemia, Hungary, as well as Austria, and then also the Spanish territory. So at a certain point in the 1500s, the Habsburgs rule, it's sort of the sun never sets on their empire. It's so big, thanks to these marriages. Can you mention their warfare with the Ottomans? I mean, how bloody was the Habsburgs' rise in this period? I mean, was it mainly achieved through dynastic union or did they have to fight for this territory they were gaining at the time? Well, <laughs> it's mostly the 16th century and it's a very bloody century in a lot of ways. They got the territories through marriage, but immediately those territories, especially Hungary, were challenged because the Ottoman Empire, at that time, the Ottoman Empire was the most powerful state in Europe. And its territories went all the way up to what's today Budapest in Hungary and almost into Austria and Vienna. In fact, twice they besieged Vienna. So the Habsburgs always have to be fighting a war against the Ottomans for really 200 years. And that's where many of their resources go. It's why they can never afford to 
centralize their states because they're too busy fighting. And the other thing is they become, in a way, again, the most important Catholic dynasty because they're in charge of fighting the non-Catholic Muslim Islamic Ottoman Empire. They take that on as a role. And then, of course, we shouldn't forget the bloody battles in the New World as well and the colonization. And then I know you're going to ask later about the Reformation, but there's some bloodshed there as well in the 1500s. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay, my next question was sent in by MHF Quigley. That is, under which Habsburg rulers did the dynasty reach the pinnacle of its influence? Well, I, I think that if we talk about territorial expansion, then it's got to be Charles V. He's the son of the Philip and Juana I mentioned before, so he inherits Spain. But he also, as the grandson of Maximilian, inherits the Netherlands, the Burgundy territories, the Austrian territories, everything. So it's during his reign that the empire has its biggest territorial expanse, I'd say. And who are the other rulers we need to know about during this period? Is there any characters that really stand out while the Habsburgs are really at the pinnacle of their powers? Well, I think if you're listening from Britain, of course, Philip II, whose armada attempted to take control of Britain, is another standout ruler in the 16th century. He's the most famous. It's interesting that it's the Spanish Habsburgs in the 1500s and 1600s who appear to be the most important. But they're also the ones who die out in the end. So there's sort of an irony there. All the ones we know about then are pretty much the Spanish ones. And you mentioned the Spanish part of the dynasty there, but also they ruled Swaves of Central Europe as well. How did that work? I mean, did they have different rulers with different parts of the empire, essentially? 
What happened was Charles V was the last one who was both Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain and all the Spanish territories. After that, I mean, it was too insane, even technologically, to hold an empire like that together. So Charles divided the empire between the Spanish half and an Austrian half that held on to Hungary and Bohemia and Austrian regions and parts of Italy, although the Spanish also had parts of Italy. So the Spanish half remained, I would say, as I said before, the most influential, but the Austrian half ruled that territory. Now, marriage remained important, but not so much to get territories, but to hold the Habsburg territories, what they did have, together. So they engaged in a policy of cousins essentially marrying. They would try to always match up an Austrian cousin with a Spanish cousin. And this had, for the Spanish line, this had some profound (laughs) biological, genealogical effects. Not so much for the Austrian side, interestingly. But this is how they held it together, by constantly intermarrying so that the interests of the dynasty remained solid. And was there ever any tension between the two sides? I would say yes, but always the Spanish half was the more influential side because it controlled the colonial territories and it had, in a sense, more financial resources. The eastern side, the Austrian side, was always engaged in fighting against the Ottomans. Of course, I imagine there were tensions, as there would be in any big family that rules substantial territory, but relatively little. I would say, on the whole, they held together. Now, you mentioned just now that one of the ways in that the Habsburgs sort of maintained their power and their cohesion was for cousins to marry cousins and for there to be lots of marriages within the dynasty. And that leads us quite nicely on to my next question, which was submitted by Dr. Linda Porter. She asks, how did they end up with the famous Habsburg jaw? And we've also had a question from NCLOS72, which is, did the Habsburgs ever realise the extent of the damage they were causing to their offspring by essentially interbreeding? Okay, so with regard to the jaw, it's generally accepted today that this is the product of a recessive gene that was emphasised through the constant intermarriage. But I should add that, for example, Charles V himself, the most powerful one of all, he had a bit of that chin, but he wasn't the product of intermarriage. So it's clearly a gene that he has that then becomes dominant, or I'm not an expert in this regard, but this is the explanation. And it's absolutely true, some of the Spanish ones, especially the later ones, were quite afflicted, not simply by the chin, but had other physical problems. And the final Spanish Habsburg king, I believe, perished in his mid-30s. It produced a lot of weakness in that line. And to be honest, I've never seen much evidence, other people may have, that the dynasty understood that this was the problem. So I'm not sure what the extent of the knowledge was. And one more thing I'll add, because I was thinking about this question. 
you won't find that chin so prominently in the Austrian line. And then, of course, when the lines break off from each other and there's less intermarriage, so you wouldn't find it in the 18th and 19th century, the last Habsburgs or even the Habsburgs today. I mean, two further quick questions on this. Would it be fair to say that it contributed to the demise of the Spanish side of the dynasty? And also, who would you say was most afflicted by it of all the rulers? Uh, well, I absolutely agree that it is responsible for the dynasty losing the Spanish holdings. The most afflicted, I would have to guess, would be the final, it's Charles II or Third. sorry, who's the final offspring, who dies young, and then there's no direct heir. So the Austrian half puts forward its sort of cousin candidate, who actually is someone, Charles VI, who's actually raised in Spain, But then there's the war of the Spanish succession because the French also offer a candidate. And after this long war, the French in the end win, although they don't completely win because the settlement at the end of the war of the Spanish succession is that the French candidate can become king of Spain, but they must be separate. Spain and and France can't merge and the two branches of the French family have to then stay separate. The Austrian... I'll just say the Austrian loser of this war is the father of Maria Theresa. Okay, we've touched upon religion already, but quite a popular question among internet search queries does relate to the Habsburgs' Catholicism. I mean, how important was their religious beliefs to their rise and their evolution? And, and how much did the, the Protestant Reformation shape that evolution? And How disruptive was it to the dynasty? Well, if we can say that the Thirty Years' War was disruptive to all of Europe and horribly, horrifyingly destructive, that's one answer to this question. The dynasty absolutely framed itself as the protector of Catholicism in the world. And so when the Protestant Reformation happened, the Holy Roman Emperor was completely opposed to any form of toleration of Protestantism. And there were several wars fought by Protestant princes against the emperor, including later the Thirty Years' War, but earlier this already was happening in the 1500s. The outcome of these wars, however, was a compromise that each ruler was allowed to determine what the religion would be in his or her territory. That compromise didn't last, but it was, the Habsburgs had to accept it. In their own territory, they were absolutely intent on removing any form of Protestantism. And it's interesting because in today's Austria, which is essentially a Catholic country, there were several regions that had become Protestant, in Styria, Carinthia, also in Bohemia, And this Protestantism was rooted out almost violently, I'd say. Some people were even deported, sent off to other areas when they wouldn't convert. But here's the irony of all of this. So the Habsburgs were the most Catholic dynasty, but when we look at them in the 19th century, they become the protectors of the Jews, which is 
so ironic because they're all up until a certain point terribly anti-Semitic and promoting anti-Jewish policies. They become the protectors of the Jews. They even become the protectors of Islam once Austria-Hungary occupies Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1878. So the final Habsburg emperors are actually known for tolerance, for accepting all religions, which is, I think, a, a great irony. Right, my next question relates to the most influential women in the story of the Habsburgs. Now, you mentioned a few minutes ago Maria Theresa. Can you tell us a little bit more about her and why she's such an important figure in the story of the dynasty? She's an absolutely remarkable figure. Her father was the Holy Roman Emperor, and he spent a great deal of his time trying to ensure that a woman would be able to inherit the lands of the dynasty and be respected by all of the neighbors, let's say, because up until then, no woman could inherit the crown. And so he created this thing called the Pragmatic Sanction, which was the, actually the first document that treated all the Habsburg holdings as a single country. Up until then, the Habsburgs were the Dukes of Austria, the Kings of Bohemia, the Kings of Hungary, but their territories were all treated differently. They had different law codes. They had different traditions. Now, for the first time at the beginning of the 1700s with the Pragmatic Sanction, all the countries that belong to the Habsburgs' holdings agree to this law. And this law becomes the basis later for a real Austrian empire that's a single state. Anyway, Maria Theresa, a very young woman, she isn't trained to come to the throne at all, which is sort of ironic given how much energy her father put into trying to ensure her succession. She comes to the throne and the instant it happens in 1741, her holdings are invaded by Frederick the Great of Prussia as well as the Duke of Bavaria. Both of them try their best to sort of take Austria apart, essentially. And Maria Theresa is forced in no time at all to raise an army and try to defend her lands. And there's many famous stories. She goes to the Hungarian diet with her baby Joseph, who's later the Emperor Joseph II, and holds him up and asks the Hungarian nobles for their support. And actually, that never happened, but it's okay. It's a good story. She did have Joseph with him, but she didn't actually hold him up in the session. Anyway, it's the subject of a lot of great paintings. And unbelievably, she managed to be victorious. She fought a war, the War of the Austrian Succession, for several years. And at the end, she had her territories and lost only one piece to Prussia, Frederick the Great. That's the beginning of the story. But then later, what she does is she realizes that she had been completely unprepared, that the dynasty didn't have a sort of standing army the way the Prussians had, and that in order to be a great power, she was going to have to reform the state. And so she brings in a lot of Enlightenment thinkers. They create all kinds of new policies. For example, they want to free the peasantry, which is... The peasants are mostly serfs, but the idea is if you have a free peasantry, they'll work more effectively and they'll create money and they'll pay taxes. And of course, the local nobles don't like that because they control the peasantry and they want to keep control. And Maria Theresa actually becomes quite popular among the peasantry because 
peasants understand that the dynasty is on their side, so to speak. She fights more wars. She puts through a range of reforms, including the first educational system in Europe that's supposed to involve all children. Of course, they don't have the resources to pay for it, so it's never realized the way it's supposed to be. But it's remarkable. And the one other thing I'll say is she was a devout Catholic, but she accepted that to achieve her goals, she was going to have to tolerate some Jews and some Protestants in particular places. So the city of Trieste, which was Austria's only port, becomes a place where all kinds of religious groups can be tolerated because they're merchants, also Greek Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Armenian, and that produces a kind of prosperity that the empire didn't have. So she's quite a remarkable figure. She is a remarkable figure by the signs of it. I mean, to what extent did she challenge preconceptions about women's ability to wield power? Yeah, it's interesting because on the one hand, she was very adept at playing the card that she was simply the mother and her husband, Franz, who was elected Holy Roman Emperor, was in charge, but of course he wasn't. Later, when her husband died, her son Joseph became Holy Roman Emperor, but she kept control. So on the one hand, she played the role of the widow. She was the mother, by the way, of a lot of children. So she sort of ended the drought that the Habsburgs had experienced of very few heirs being produced. She produced a lot of children, including Marie Antoinette. Probably everyone remembers her youngest child, but also two emperors, a bunch of cardinals, many daughters who married other rulers. So I would say she's an early example of a woman negotiating rather successfully and using successfully her role as mother and wife, but also combining it with ruler. She was a very strong ruler. She had a lot of arguments with her son when he became emperor, and she always won. Now, Peter, you've argued in a recent book, the people of the Habsburg Empire developed actually quite an attachment for the dynasty under which they lived. And that was people of all different creeds and religions. And also you've touched upon already in our interview, there was a, a level of sort of tolerance within that empire. So I wonder if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. What was it like to live under the Habsburgs? And how did that differ from, say, living in Britain or in France at the time? Well, it's difficult to generalise across hundreds of years but I would say that the empire, the Habsburgs, developed not because they were terribly nice, but because they really had to, a form of tolerance that accepted, for example, the fact that there were 10, 11, 12 languages in use in their states. They didn't impose one language. Joseph II, at the end of the 1700s, imposes German as a language of administration, but not because he wants people to become German, but because he thinks that German is the most modern and technologically advanced language for the bureaucracy to use, let's say. But still, for like local decrees, they use local languages. So they develop in a very different way from the other states of Europe that are becoming... I mean, if you think even of the United Kingdom, which is really at least four nations and has 
many different languages, but there it develops much differently. Or France, where at the beginning of the 19th century, only about 20 to 25 percent of the population actually knew French. So they develop in the area of nationalization, one language. But in the Habsburg monarchy, they develop in the direction of an acceptance of all these languages. And in the 19th century, in the 1848 and then in the 1860s, this is put into the constitution of the country. There's also a kind of equality. There's a civil code that's imposed at the beginning of the 1800s that gives technically equality to all the citizens. Now, it doesn't mean that in society the nobility stopped having its cultural privileges, but it's an interesting and little-known fact, I think, And it's done again because the Habsburgs want to have the peasantry and the middle class on their side. And for most peasants in the 19th century, they loved the dynasty. And it wasn't because they were illiterate and they didn't know better or they thought the emperor was some god or something like that. It's because they understood that the Habsburgs were ruling in their interests that the local nobles, for example, who were oppressing the peasants, that the Habsburgs were fighting the local nobles to try to free the peasants. So there's a strong loyalty there. The Habsburgs did something else, which was they created a real meritocracy of a bureaucracy, a system that was supposed to rule fairly and which employed the sons and later the daughters of the educated middle classes. That made the middle classes also quite loyal to the dynasty because they saw opportunity and social mobility in the state itself. Where did it all go wrong? Because another question submitted on social media, which is, how did Emperor Franz Joseph's reign impact the fall of the Habsburg Empire? And was the empire on the path to disintegration by the end of the 19th century? So I will give an answer that may sound unfamiliar and strange to most people. But today, I think most historians of the empire would agree with me. And that is this. The empire was not on its way to disaster in the late 19th century. And that is, in a sense, a myth that was promulgated but also really pushed by the states that succeeded the empire after the First World War, that they saw their legitimacy in looking at the empire as a sort of ramshackle anachronism that was going to fall apart anyway. Now, Emperor Franz Josef is an interesting case At the beginning of his reign, the revolutions of 1848, everybody hated him. He was so unpopular, especially the Hungarians, because he had a lot of them executed after the revolution. But by the time we get to the late 19th century, he's one of the most popular people in Europe. He's everybody's grandfather. And in one sense, he was very good at the end of not expressing any opinions, so that when there was political conflict, as there was quite a bit, all European states had that, he didn't express an opinion the way he had at the beginning of his reign, so he was seen as sort of everybody's father or grandfather. But he did, (laughs) in his 80s, 
He was part of the decision to take Austria-Hungary into World War I. And here I would like to stress that Austria-Hungary did start that war. I mean, it had a lot of help from other countries, but it's Austria-Hungary that I think bears the main responsibility. Why did the empire fall? It fell because of the war. And I don't think people realize today just how dangerous the war was for every European state that fought it. For example, we think of a nationality conflict in Austria-Hungary, but if you look at the war, there is no rebellion in Austria-Hungary, whereas there is a rebellion in the British Empire in Ireland for nationalist reasons. So it's the war that weakens it. And then there's one other point. Every country in the war had a sort of emergency legislation that allowed for almost a quasi-dictatorship of the government because of wartime. But Austria-Hungary had a really, really terrible military dictatorship. And that dictatorship, I would say, destroyed the trust of the people in the ability of law, fairness, justice to be carried out. The military had a lot of prejudices against certain language groups, especially Serb speakers, but also Ukrainian speakers, Italian speakers, and they persecuted those groups unnecessarily. Those groups within the empire were largely loyal at the beginning of the war, but the military dictatorship did a lot to destroy that loyalty. So to me, we have to look at what happened during the war to understand the collapse. And I would not say that the empire was headed for collapse before the war. It had some weaknesses, certainly, but it also had the loyalty of the large majority of its people. Because there is this image, isn't there, of the empire being, by this stage, a bit of an, an anachronism, of being blind to its people's sort of thirst for self-determination. Are you arguing then that that's been overplayed in the past, that theory? Well, a lot of nationalist groups wanted self-determination within the empire, and that's the thing we forget. Almost no one wanted out of the empire, and that's something we need to remember. The other thing is the empire actually facilitated the rise of these nationalist groups by giving a lot of rights based on language use and practice of religion. So the empire, for example, guaranteed schooling in your own language, which meant that people were educated then in the 11 or 12 official languages. And they also could then demand more things based on language, like local autonomy, political autonomy. By the end, the Austrian half of the empire was quite federalized, and there was a lot of autonomous regions. The Hungarian half acted like a nation state, more like the states that replaced the empire after the war. The problem is, after the war, the new states were all states that had considerable minorities within their populations. And when I say considerable, I mean like 30 to 40 percent. But they acted like nation states. And I would say those new states, successor states, ended up oppressing their national minorities in ways that had never been the case in the empire. So I'd say this is a little bit of historical revisionism, perhaps. Now, I have a question here from Claire in the Clouds with Diamonds, which is, 
Are there any Habsburgs left? I mean, what happened to them after the First World War and actually after the Second World War as well? Okay, this is an excellent question. And one answer would be there's millions of them. You meet them all the time. There's, everyone seems to be descended from the Habsburgs. But so the last emperor king was a very young man who was emperor already in his, during the war in his late 20s, Charles, and his wife, Empress Zita. They ruled for barely two years and then were sent into exile, and he died at a very young age, 31 or 32. So, but they had a lot of children too, and those children had children. The son, their eldest son, was Otto, Otto von Habsburg. He did his best to sort of hold the dynasty together, he and his mother, Zita. During the war, the Nazis, for example, tried very hard to get the Habsburgs either to endorse them or to imprison them. And Zita and Otto, for example, spent part of the Second World War in the United States. After the war, Otto became one of the biggest proponents of a united Europe. So in a way, you could say the Habsburg mission became a mission to create a kind of Danube federation that would replace the monarchy, and then later a whole united Europe that would prevent war of the kind we saw in World War II ever again. And today, I would say the most articulate spokespeople in the family are those who are involved in the sort of European unity movement. And Rosemary D. Kelty asks, how do the Habsburgs influence their nations in the present day. Expand on that a little. What is the legacy of the Habsburgs? Why should we care about them in the 21st century? Oh my God, the legacy is unbelievable. And it's fascinating that in all of the successor states, states which in the 1920s rejected the Habsburgs, including Austria and Hungary, now the Habsburgs are sort of a symbol of a kind of period of nostalgia in the past that was kind of a golden age of a certain kind of unity and maybe tolerance and also a great flowering of the arts, literature, music, the sciences that people sort of look back to as a golden age. So there's more and more if you go to Many of the cities in East Central Europe, and certainly if you go to Vienna, there's a lot of Habsburg stuff. You'll go to pubs in Krakow, for example, and see portraits of Emperor Franz Josef. Unimaginable in the 1920s up to the end of the 1980s, but now it's a big thing. If you go to Lviv in Ukraine, which you can't do today, but it's the same thing. There's a lot of emphasis on the Habsburg period. There are many legacies that are invisible. For example, school systems, forms of administration, food, gastronomy is a big one. A lot of different countries claim dishes that they share in common with each other from their Habsburg past. And that goes from Milan all the way to Ukraine or Croatia or Czech Republic. There are signs of the Habsburg Empire everywhere now, and they are only on the increase, which I find fascinating. And my final question, Peter, which is inspired by something you just said, you mentioned now Habsburg culture and the sciences under Habsburg rule. You said they flowered at points during 
the dynasty. Can you just tell us a little bit about that, please? That sounds pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. Some of the most important sciences in the 19th century, especially, are located at universities in the Habsburg Empire. I would say there's a whole range of possibilities. Climate science, for example, develops radically in the late 19th century in the Habsburg Empire. Earthquake science, psychology and psychiatry, as we all know, but also, for example, architecture. There are schools of architecture that are highly influential throughout the Habsburg monarchy. So I'm probably shortchanging a bunch of sciences by not mentioning them, but I would say the universities were really leading centers of knowledge. And of course, after the First World War, that ended. They became national universities. They may have been good, but they lacked the strength that they had had by being centers in a large empire. Let's not forget the Habsburg Empire was the largest free trade unit zone in Europe in 1914, and that was all lost, of course. So uh, there's a lot uh, to consider about the legacy. That was Peter Judson, professor of 19th and 20th century history at the European University Institute. His books include The Habsburg Empire, A New History, published by Harvard University Press in 2016. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer-Arden.